Bonjour. Welcome to the Dexabit Data Diaries. This is your captain speaking. You're listening to the Data Diaries. Data Diaries. So he's got the best voice? Nice. Yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Data Diaries. I'm Angie Judge from Dexabit and here with us today we have Seb Chan, Chief Experience Officer at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. A big welcome to Seb. But before we start, I'm going to get this out there. You could be forgiven for assuming that Seb is Australian. He's based in Melbourne. He serves as the adjunct professor at the School of Media and Communications in the College of Design and Social Context at RMIT. Plus, he's on the board of the National Communications Museum in Melbourne and the National President of the Australian Museums and Galleries Association. And I should add, outside of Australia, also an advisory board member of Art Science Museum in Singapore too. And many of our listeners will be familiar with Seb's earlier digital transformation work at the Powerhouse in Sydney. And of course, between Sydney and Melbourne, he then jetted to New York to lead the digital renewal and transformation of Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York, including the very well-known pen experience there. But Seb is actually a Kiwi like me from New Zealand and we New Zealanders are very sensitive about things that are mistakenly claimed as Australian like Crowded House and Russell Crowe and Pavlova. So I just needed to get the record on that straight first. So Seb, you pretty much invented the Chief Experience Officer or the CXO role for visitor attractions and so many people have now followed in your footsteps especially in this era of the experience economy. What trends in the sector brought about that need on the leadership team and how has the role evolved for you in the years since? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess when, you know, I, th- I think when I when the CXO came up, you know, when my role was called the CXO role, it, it was really an acknowledgement that, ex- that, that museums and galleries were primarily experiential spaces and that now sounds ridiculous that we didn't think they were before but but there was a moment I think when we were a little bit less sure about that strangely enough and I think that sort of mid the early 2010s and certainly subsequent to 2015 um, it's it's very it's very rare to find senior museum people or boards that don't feel that museum and gallery experiences are fully experiential things. Obviously, we've got a long, long, long way to go with that in what that actually means in the production and the processes and cure, and curation. But yeah, you know, I think we it's pretty clear we 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 op- we operate as part of an experience economy, um, and we don't just need to follow in that sense too. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, I think the other thing that's 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 changed perhaps. In my role, particularly, uh, we did a we we did a restructure here in uh, 2019 as a part of uh, preparing to reopen. This was pre pre COVID, and that that um, restructure was a ground up restructure where the staff you know voted uh, designed and voted for a new org organizational structure. And it was interesting in that that you know my my role now pulls in. A lot more teams than it did previous, previous, previously, and that experience and engage experience and engagement division of the museum is you know one of one of the three 
major major divisions of the museum now and that means i guess that the cxo role touches more of that visitor journey and more of the interactions visitors have and also staff have with each other and and so that experience extends beyond the out outward facing but actually now more seriously acknowledges the inward facing and the new opportunities that that brings and it's in and it's in interaction perhaps at the more ob- obvious end of things around brand and communications as well I'm interested in coming back to this restructure a little bit later in our conversation because it's a fascinating thing what you're doing with with the team there but I'm, I've never really thought about it like that how you talk about this new age of the experiential space I've certainly heard the argument played out are we here first for the collection or the visitor but I've never really had that takeaway that you've shone a light on for me about this shift in in the leadership space of visitor attractions and museums of there being a time when regardless of which one of those things comes first we even didn't consider the experience of the space yeah, it's in, it's in, 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 interesting, isn't it? I think you know. I think part of that is just the sort of realization, and and the way, particularly in um, the way museums and galleries have seen themselves as part of cities, and have had stronger relationships with city governments, and then other other levels of government too, and and planning and urban planning and that sort of piece of being part of the revitalization of cities, the, the whole Bilbao effect and all of that, you know, all of that was hap, hap, happening for years, decades, in fact. You know, the experience economy phrase comes out of the 1990s. But at some point that that flipped over into the, the, the way museums work with curation and collections too. And I, perhaps it dates back to the period when there there was that switch from visitors not not being allowed to take photos in museums and then suddenly they are you know, maybe it does date to really the birth of mobile and smartphones in in museums that 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 really sealed 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 the deal you know and i i guess i often also think in other i mean other media the way that fan fan cultures and audience participation is is now built into the way major film feature feature films and other ip properties for want of a better word are um are designed and made now so you know you, you can't you, you you can sort of draw a line i guess but but between the pre-fan designed media and the post-fan designed media being you know i guess if we think about marvel films the way that they, they, they're almost structured to to engage fans beyond the moment you're actually watching the film itself, the, con- the, the content of the film is is a small a small part of your engagement with that in their world, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which includes all that stuff around fans and the stories that fans tell to each other and share and all of those things. That was kind of not a thing, you know, but it's hard to imagine that. It's a bit like it's very hard to imagine the the world before Wikipedia or the world before Google or even, sadly, a world sort of without uh, capitalism. <laughs> and I know this this sort of cultural equivalent of fandom and how the experience plays into that before, during and after the visit to a physical venue 
plays really big into your philosophy around uh, what it means to have an experience in a museum. But I'm glad you mentioned this trigger around digital and smartphones for this change of where we are now. How do you actually see the CXO role itself fitting with the CDO or the chief digital officer role we saw so much attention to emerging in the years prior? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the CDO and the CXO kind of, in in my mind, have in, in many ways merged because digital is no longer a, a separate thing. Digital is part of experience and it's part of the mission and pur- purpose. I think the fade, the fade, the fading out of the C, of, of the C, CDO role, it sort of occurred around, I guess, between 2013 to 2017, was really an acknowledgement that there isn't there isn't uh, there there isn't a museum experience there there isn't a museum without digital baked 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 in anyway, and you know in my group we have the I you know the ICT and the infrastructure side of um, things is in my remit as well, and it's interesting the sort of uh, different ways we have discussions inside the institution and outside the institution too the in the. Uh, CEO digital mentoring program that we're running too in, in Australia. This sort of sense around di- di- digital having an infrastructural element to it, but also a, a creative capacity element to it as well, as long um, um, alongside the sort of notions of digital literacy and digital fluency. The inf- the infrastructural side, much as the the materiality of IT hasn't gone away. You know, there's still rare earth metals there's still you know the 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 cloud is a series of server server farms in warehouses in cheap in cheap kind of realist real estate parts of the world you know it's all that sort of stuff there are pipes there are cables there are physical things that materiality i think is starting to come back and we're starting to think about the interplay between what um, museums and galleries make make possible as being constrained a little by that materiality and needing staff, technically savvy staff, who are aware of what that materiality means infrastructurally, but also then also staff who can see it in terms of capability and possibility in terms of experience. And that that's something that the CDO role, I guess, is emerging out of a CIO role. The CIO was all the, the hard IT side of things. The CDO was sort of a softer version of that. The CXO is trying, you know, in in my mind at least, tries to marry those two. Often, I though I do see a lot of CXO roles, new new newish CXO roles, uh, sort of foregoing that inf- that infrastructural side, even though it probably plays a more significant part now than ever before. Um, and certainly, that tech tech technical literacies certainly haven't gone away. They're very important, even more so now with machine kind of learning too. That actually understanding the technologies is is a key part of being competent in the emerging world. I was going to ask this question a little bit later on, but I think we we keep on coming back to sort of the cross-functional nature of your team and, and the necessity of that for the CXO role to be successful. And I know at ACME, you, in addition to going through a redevelopment these past few years, you also underwent a simultaneous bottom-up staff-led restructure that the staff themselves had voted for, which 
sounds very unique. And essentially, from what I understand, adopting this notion of cross-functional teams. So what has that been like for you? Yeah, it was really in, in it was really, you know, it was exciting and challenging. Katrina Sedgwick, our CEO and director and director, instigated that change. And, you know, it, it was really, I think, her way of acknowledging that the institution before redevelopment and after 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 reopening were going to be different. And the staff-led restructure was a way of signaling that and uh, buying in own ownership amongst the staff of this is a new inst- a, a new institution now. How do we need to op- op- operate it? So staff formed groups and came up with different models for executive and team teams and the like. And then, pro- then proposed a series that were then vote- voted on, and then that was taken to the executive and the board, and 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 with some tweaks implemented. But it was really a way of sig- signalling change and signalling that you know we'd been through this big physical change, and for some of us a programmatic change. So for the cura- curatorial staff and those who work deep deeply with the renewal project, this programmatic change. And obviously, alongside that, the tech, technological shifts too. But then opening the building was bringing out the lived reality to all the staff that it was going to be a different a different museum. And, and it wasn't a different museum that was static, but it was a museum that was starting anew with new opportunities to, to, to do different things that people who worked on the renewal hadn't imagined, but were setting the, the stage for that to be possible if that makes sense. So it was sort of like birthing a new a new world and then rather rather than that being seen as a static thing, as some something that needed people to buy into and then further develop, which which I think was really exciting. And it has been really exciting. I think it's it's helped a lot of the subsequent process change changes that we're still working th- working through. I think since launch, you know, with some of the old practices, um, systems and processes, ways of doing things. Have needed to have become clear that they've needed to adjust both as a result of the new building and the new the new opportunities that that brings and the more diverse audiences we're attracting and the different needs they bring but also then also with covid that, that that's been you know we've been a, we've been able to use this moment of change to work comparatively well with the challenges of the pandemic which which of course have been incredibly challenging but i think for us we were in a we were in a a, 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 um, a uh, rather privileged and un- and unique space where we we're already going through that change change process anyway, mm. or, or we were already closed, and so it was about adjusting and making 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 the most of a terrible opportunity. Mm. We've certainly noticed ourselves um, a almost organic move to more agility, more urgency in the way that um, a a lot of cultural institutions in particular are working at the moment. You mentioned changes to your practices and processes in there. Hmm. How has that cross-functional nature in adopting Agile and so forth changed how the practicalities of how the ACME team approach things like a new exhibition versus what you would see a traditional museum doing? Well, we haven't adopted it across everything. I would make it clear that we have. We still have a mix of different practices and processes. We have 
a new project project management management frame uh, frame framework that has has real, really only just begun. We've been working on this for quite a while with uh, one of our university partners at Swinburne University, which again, you know, was about understanding that not everything not everything can change at once, but sometimes the new what you arrive at requires further further change and and more things come into play there. Certainly as we've come to learn the building and its affordances, that's become more clear. I, I guess the other, you know, we, we have a lot of legacy systems and that we're not, you know, I'm talk, talking about collection management, I'm talking about ticketing systems. Those systems take a long time to change. And in many cases, it's about how you work work with them rather than what the systems actually are. So again, it's been about shifting to a model and I think the new organizational structure well it's not really new since 2019 but the 2019 to now structure structure has has more transparency across processes so the cross-functional piece of the institution requires cross-functional workings to be visible to all and so certainly transparency has been key in that And, and you know we use tools like like slack and trello uh, and conf- and confluence to show more things to more teams if they're curious, and certainly across the experience and engagement group, which which, which is now you know really large. There's lots of staff and lots of managers in that group. The cross-functional nature is supported by our systems rather than the systems getting in the way of that. If that makes sense, mm, it does, and. So for our listeners out there, so ACME is about film, games, TV, art, digital culture, and and you've been undergoing a massive redevelopment these past few years. So the, the museum shut its doors in 2019, if I've got that right, Seb, and yeah, reopened yeah. 21. And really fortunate timing in, the, in a way, given what the world was going through in 2020, albeit that uh, we're sadly still in lockdown yeah, in yeah. Australia with the Delta outbreak. Um, but how has the essence of the visitor experience at ACME shifted with both the redevelopment and then the pandemic on top? Yeah, so I think you know we were designing from 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 the very from the very beginning in the very early stage, stage stages of the master planning for that redevelopment project, forty million dollar redevelopment, architectural, technological, and programmatic slash curatorial. You know, it was very it was very much about creating the tools and the opportunities for a museum of that, those things, particularly film, TV and games. Film, TV, games, di- digital culture, or as we now say, screen culture, those are those are all fields. Screen, screen culture is a field that is not exclusive to the museum, like in, in uh, that visitors bring a lot of their own knowledge and have a lot of op- op- opportunities to both Create and cons- and consume and participate in screen screen culture when they go home, which is quite quite uh, different to a fine arts uh, to a fine art museum. A fine arts a fine arts museum obviously has things that you can't experience at home. The museum, you know, we're a museum of everything that you can and pro- and do experience at home. And in many ways, the purpose of a visit is to expose you to other things and other ways of looking and list 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 listening watching and playing 
of perhaps things you are familiar with and perhaps things you are not familiar with. So it's that sort of sense of change, cha- changing people's perception that they then take away with with them as well. So, you know, we're, uh, in the te- technological side of the visitor experience, this was about building tools for that in uh, gallery experience to ex- to ex- to extend into people's homes. So, you know, people get this thing we call the lens, recyclable take-home device that they can go around their galleries and collect things as they move through and then take home to watch at home later on various streaming plat- streaming platforms or on their PlayStation or other gaming platforms as well. Super exciting. And that, you know, in, in some ways that, that creates a visitor experience that's quite interesting, but it also creates a curatorial experience that, that's, in, that's in, in, interesting too because it allows the curators to, con- to connect the things that they have access to through our collection or uh, through loans in our galleries to things that they don't have that they can point people to when they get home. So they can connect TV and films and games to other things that the museum would never, ever show but has, but has an interest in. So it's a sort of, uh, you know, in, in, in the early ways, in the early days, you know, I would often talk about it gives the museum the opportunity to curate the world of screen culture, screen culture which I think is really interesting and exciting as, as, as an opportunity for a museum to do. And I guess the second side of that was with the pandemic. I mean, I mean obviously our reopening was delayed. We, we opened in February 2021 with the gallery experience and all of this. But before that, we launched a reboot of the main themes of the major ongoing exhibition. We have Story of the Moving Image as a magazine, web kind of magazine experience, digital magazine experience with videos embedded and all sorts of stuff that really zoomed out on the major curatorial stories um, of the exhibitions um, and programming and brand. And we also launched Gallery 5, which is a web gallery for NetArt, which are new commissions predominantly that we're doing now as well, and a thing called Cinema 3. So we have two physical cinemas in our building, but Cinema 3 is an on kind of line paper, you know, paper, uh, you know, pay-per-view rental streaming service, which is great too. And that's allowed not only us to continue our film programming, but also because the museum hosts film you know film fest film film festivals for various other community groups um, and others from human rights film festival the, the environmental the queer film festival to the japanese film festival check check and check and slowback and many many others the cinema 3 platform is offered to those fest 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 festival clients as clients as well for them to use which again allows them to do things that they couldn't do if they were just using our physical cinema. So that that allows them to have a film festival on our platform that actually reaches all of Australia potentially, which is very, very different when you're thinking about that from a programming perspective, like a film programming perspective, to programming a a festival within a building within Melbourne itself where the audience is primarily Melbourne Melbourne people. So again, using the opportunities of the museum to and the infrastructure of uh, the museum as a community platform. Uh, so that's that's been really uh, exciting and uh, has been con- uh, 
can, um, continuing to grow in ways I don't think we had expect, expected we would do as quickly prior to COVID. Mm, I certainly enjoyed a lot of screen culture during my lockdown. I'm going to have to check out this Cinema 3 to get me through the last of it. But this is a really fascinating thing to me that as a cultural institution, this isn't just a program. This is a platform that you're enabling these partners to deliver new experiences to their communities. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is the role of infrastructure projects. I mean, you know, I think that that, that was always the role with the, re, the, the redevelopment of, of the museum was to use that capital investment to create new opportunities, not, not just for ourselves, but for others too, our communities that we work and serve, artists that we work, 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 work with and other creative pra- practitioners too, but also in a digital sense that we, we, we can provide other supports. You know, we, we are a museum of screen culture. We have, we have skin in the game and we have stakes in that too. And so we, we need to be, and we do, uh, think beyond just the venue as both a physical and digital space, but what does that enable? So it creates an enabling museum, which I think is very important, particularly in this in, in, in increasingly fractious time. And, you know, right back to the very early days of the master planning, which we did with David Hebblethwaite, a, a, New, a, New, a New Zealand-based museum designer. Dave, David had this beautiful phrase of visitor chemistry, and he would de- describe that as a really great museum experience is where, Visitor chemistry, where visitor chemistry is created, and that allows people from different 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 families or cultural groups visiting a museum to talk to each other when they don't know each other. And I just felt that that was really really encapsulated really encapsulated what a public museum should should be doing is creating those space spaces where people talk to each other, and and, and that's something you know I think in this difficult political time and economic time we 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 need more 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 spaces where where that's possible and they need to be designed to enable to enable that rather than designed without trying trying it to do that mm. and speaking of that early advice i i really enjoyed one of your recent blog articles you mentioned some words from was it elaine gurian on operating models for new or refurbished venues, which was always designed for three levels of visitation, extremely busy, busy, and almost empty. And you, you referred to that as fallow periods that are part of every cultural institution's operating reality. How did you achieve that? And, and how has that come to fruition in these days of lockdowns and reopenings? Yeah, look, Elaine um, said that to me, you know, when I was still at the Powerhouse Museum and, and Elaine, you know, had spent most of her career building and reopening and, and launching museums. You know, she'd, she'd done the, the NMAI for the, Smith, for, 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 for the Smithsonian on uh, the Mall, the Native American Museum there. And, and you know, it's been such, a, such an important voice in the museum community. I always thought it was really, really interesting, this sort of, challenge of designing for the very very busy days but then the reality that a lot of days there's no one there Uh, look there's always a time maybe it's tuesday at 10 a.m when the galleries are super quiet and if they don't work well then 
it's not it's it's not it's not a success. Similarly, if a visitor visits when it's really really busy, how are you going to manage that? And I think you know for us, um, we've been fortunate. We've had some really really busy days when we've been able to be open, but we've also realised that you know since uh, COVID that the visiting patterns to the city and people's leisure leisure time have have, have quite significantly changed, and certainly without. Uh, for many months, domestic and international national tourism in Australia and, and in Melbourne, border closures and other things. The weekdays uh, have been very quiet for us, but the weekends have been enormously busy, well beyond what we expected. And that's created this this very lived reality of that. And, and we actually changed our, our hours to cope with that. So we now open from 12, 12 o'clock to 5 during the week and from 10 o'clock to 6 on weekends. But for school but for school visits, we open from 9, 9, 9 o'clock to 12 during the week for booked school, school, school visits, which is something we didn't previously do. So in the before times, school, school visitors would be going through the galleries in the mornings during the week at the same time as tourists and other visitors would, and there, there would be that tension that is created between groups of school school kids and perhaps a mature age uh, tourists coming in wanting to have a, a quieter gallery experience. And it's been interesting that by adjusting with COVID's realities, we've been able to cater for both groups well. Um, and our visitor experience staff too, um, you know, they, they really do prioritise a great, a great uh, uh, visitor experience for all. But the operating model now supports that better. And I guess linked to that too, you know, the sense that uh, we, we, we're able to be more nuanced around how we su- support uh, visitors with different kind of needs. So we have, you know, low sensory time, uh, time, uh, time slots as well for visitors with, uh, low, with low sensory requirements where we have the light, the, the lighting up higher, and we have less sound and all of this. So, so again, you know, the pandemic coupled with our redevelopment, coupled with the or, the organisational shift around thinking and the prioritisation of that visitor experience, has allowed us to uh, to achieve some of those things that, you know, I think we always wanted to achieve, but the building and the operation, the operating model, um, got in the way of. Mm. I've seen so many attractions change their op- opening hours to. Uh, the post-COVID world and that being one of the most impactful changes that they've made in reopening. But that's genius to bring in the schools separately because it really helps the experience of both the kids and the other visitors, neither of which sometimes do well at the same time. Yeah, and look, I think also for, for teachers too, they they really love mm. the sense that the school, the school kids get a special experience too. Mm. Um, and I think that's also in a COVID world, um, it makes it ease, easier for parents to feel yeah. that their kids are safe and they won't be with anyone else who isn't part of the school community anyway. And behind the scenes, I've heard a few whispers of what your team have been building out, what you've dubbed as an experience operating system or XOS. What What is the vision for that? Yeah, the XOS is, is uh, something that came from, uh, you know, when Greg, uh, Greg, Greg Turner was work, work, working as our uh, CTO on the renewal, and it was really about giving a name to a, a disparate set at that at that 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 point quite a disparate set of middle of middleware that allowed 
the different back of house systems to connect to each other. So a lot of legacy systems in terms of collection management and ticketing particularly, but also a legacy website. And the XOS now connects those systems to each other, but also to all the new gallery infrastructure and has spun out some things around temperature and condition monitoring, IP and license management, all sorts of things that you know, we're never in the the original scope, but became necessary as part of if ev- if everything is connected up in a lightweight way, there are all these these other benefits if you connect these other adjacent things up too. But the XOS can continues to grow, but as, but as I say, it's it's a series, it's it's a net, network of interconnecting bricks to connect other Lego Lego blocks together. And it's, you know, relatively unique to us in that we couldn't just give XOS to another museum. It's, it's, it's more a philosophical approach. There are, of course, productized units of that. So the um, um, can, uh, temp, uh, temperature and condition management suite is available for other museums to uh, use. And similarly, some of the connectors to, to, uh, to, 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 uh, proprietary systems and also of course the inf- the inf- the infrastructure that sits around the lens so the way the lens works uh, as an nf uh, as an nf uh, as an nf kind of c device has a series of readers which are physical uh, which also have of course their physical microcomputers with soft software running on them those are also productizable as well so it's it's a mix the xos is sort of a a uh, brand um, a, a brand umbrella to cut to cover a complex network of of little things. And Seb, you mentioned the lens earlier, so this physical disc shaped souvenir that deliberately, from what I understand, looks like an old ViewMaster slide that visitors receive when they come to the museum and they then tap to collect these things that they're enjoying to take Acme home with them maybe pin it on their fridge and come back to what they enjoyed later and share. What lessons did you take from the pen at Cooper Hewitt and your strategy forward for the lens at Acme? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the pen at Cooper Hewitt was constrained by the technical realities and production realities of that period of time. So, and and the specific context of the Cooper Hewitt, the, you know, very early on in that, that we did originally want to give visitors a pen to take home with them but of course the manufacturer the physical reality of that the costs the the manufacturing and all the other things meant that that was never 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 going to be possible Um, but it was always the the idea that if you could give something to someone that they took home that would be much much better than giving them something to borrow that then they took a proxy home like a code on a ticket for and so when when we did the one kind of the land exhibition the tour to new zealand um, to take papa and to art kind of science in singapore as well the sand pit a local uh, design and art company came up with a thing called the map which we used in that exhibition again it was a take 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 home uh, folding piece of paper that did magical things with te- te- technology and we found that that worked really well and visitors were really excited about getting this, this souvenirable thing. And the lens then evolved from a, a much more optical device, as was originally in the master, master planning in 2016-17, to this Viewmaster-style souvenir piece. It's really the size of a compact disc or a DVD in those old days. 
blue, you know, Blu-ray disc, I guess now, even physical media is a bit weird, but yeah, this sort of sense, again, it, it points to the physicality of visual, of, of screen, screen culture too. So it's a nice sort of, it's, it's got nice messages built into it. It's, it's a beautiful thing, but it works similar to the pen, except it doesn't have batteries. So the battery, the, the power is in the walls, something we couldn't do at Cooper Hewitt, uh, rather than, so the power was in the pen at Cooper Hewitt. So, yeah, so it, it really extends that. And I think the other thing that we've done that, you know, Cooper Hewitt, the experience of doing Cooper, doing Cooper Hewitt definitely attuned me to the production realities that manufacturing physical products is really, really, really hard, particularly at any sense of scale. And that was something, you know, I think in the early days of Cooper Hewitt, we were working with local projects and we were all at that moment, you know, we're talking 2012, there was that big, big boom on Kickstarter where everybody was doing physical, small, small, small run manu- you know, manufacturing projects. Lots of artists, a lot of, lot of designers, a lot of creative people were like, wow, we can actually do physical manu- manufacturing now. And actually, you know, three, 3D printing was hot and all of this sort of stuff. But actually, it turns out that making things and shipping them to people as physical things is really, really hard. And we saw through 2013, 14 and 15 that a lot of those Kickstarter projects blew out um, or didn't ship at all. You know, manufacturing is really hard. But the Cooper Hewitt experience, um, you know, working with my team there and working with all our collaborators there, really you know was such a great experience in understanding or beginning to understand the challenges and the opportunities of bespoke manufacturing in the museum space subs also the absolute criticality of on on boarding and the visitor experience in integration around bringing mm. something new in into a museum experience that sense that a museum a, a, a visitor arrives at a museum not expecting to 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 be given a pen or a map or a lens. They don't expect that. They certainly don't don't expect that to be a key part of what they do. Nor do they necessarily get how it works. And so, certainly, the the importance of designing the full user journey around that product is super important. And that's something we worked really hard on with the teams that. At, at here with the lens and Lucy Patterson's team has done a huge amount of evolution around that and thinking around how does that work? How do we communicate that to visitors? What are visitors doing with it? All of that piece. And um, what we've learned and what we learned from Cooper Hewitt too, if, if kind of you put the effort in, the effort pays off many times over because people remember it and even when it only partially works, they're excited about this is different from other museums. And I got a lovely message from a um, museum colleague who works at AMNH in New in uh, New York Natural Hist- History across uh, the road from uh, across the park from a Cooper Hewitt who had been doing some visitor research and was speaking to some teenagers in um, in uh, you know, New York last year and 
some of them actually mentioned, I went to this amazing museum where you got this this pen thing and it did all this stuff. It was so, so, so cool. And I was like, wow, that is success because that is the thing the kid remembers and associates with that museum experience. And it's something that, you know, I think it's if we're going to diversify who visits museums and who is inspired by museums, we need to make museums feel special and different from each other. And it isn't just what's in the museum, it is the experience of of the museum also has got to be unique and useful and usable so the lens the the lens really leans in on that and pushes hard around this sort of sense of you're in a museum of screen culture you should be able to take things home to watch of course you should you're a museum of film and tv film tv and games if you come to the museum you should expect that you are going to go home and watch or play more things on screens that's the point right and I think the lens does that pretty well, you know. And I think it's 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 um, it's 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 evolved a lot from the complexity of the pen, and it's very simple and works very well. Greg Greg Turner and the team did a huge amount of work on getting the feedback when you touch the lens to a label to be very snappy. And you know, we're talking shaving microseconds off an interaction, but when you're doing that forty times in a visit those microseconds add, add up. And it's been really interesting to see how the, that last 10, 10% of design finesse pays off. It is the ultimate challenge, isn't it, in this new CDO come CXO era when faced with these new generations coming through of bringing these two things together, the hybrid of the physical visit and the digital experience, whether you're having a digital experience during your physical visit or coming back to your physical visit through your mm. digital connection. Yeah, and I think, look, I mean, I mean the, ob- the obvious thing everyone asks is like, why isn't it just 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 on people's phones? And that was a quest- question we were asked, you know, in New, in, uh, new, in, uh, new, uh, new York too, you know, all of the time. Was, why isn't this just an app? Can't I just do that with my phone? And I think, you know, I've, I've often come back to that question and I would always say, and I would still, still say, but you do that on your phone in the rest of your life. It is not special. The phone is no longer magical. And in fact, what we want to do is create experiences within museums when everything else is accessible and should be accessible. You want to create unique experiences within museums that are memorable and different from the outside world. And, you know, I, I, I was talking, you know, way back in 2016, again, during this master planning phase, there's there's some um, drawings of some of the meetings that we had in those early days. And, you know, this sort of sense of the museum as a magic circle and visitors attaining superpowers when they come into the museum that they don't have in the out, out, outside world. You know, when you come to the museum, what is the special thing that gives you superpowers while you're there? That then change change changes your life when 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 you leave and 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 just putting things on a phone that doesn't do that that's that's just like work or school or hanging out like that's fine but it it's not different um, and that really really changes how people perceive the difference of the museum to the to the rest of their lives and I think that difference is important and that difference matters because that's that's what helps 
museum visitors achieve their you know boost their curiosity or engage them with whatever the museum's trying trying to do i love that it's the ultimate bullet to the question of um doesn't digital take away from the fact that the visitor wants to visit and um i love that giving them superpowers is the the thing that makes that visit special and novel Seb, what's next for you and the team at ACME? Where to from here? Uh, look, I think COVID's obviously changed a lot of the, the realities of the future. And it's certainly, you know, the other thing I, I, I should have man- mentioned in the redevelopment was, was the significant new focus on first on first kind of first kind of nations story storytelling and self 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 kind of representation. Uh, telling local stories has become even more critical now um, and those local local stories and the nature of those store stories and who gets to be to tell those store stories has has also accelerated during COVID and it's brought out many of the social inequities in our society and Acme is very well placed now with its tech technologies its new programming afford 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 affordances and the architectural affordances of the, the physical space itself and of our digital spaces, Cinema 3, Gallery 5, it, it's really well set up to continue to allow different different and new and emergent things to be experimented with quicker and more cheaply than ever before. And I think that's really where we're at now. We're, we're um, taking stock of how things have been and how things are being used and we are evolving those for all the future exhibitions and all the future programming so you'll see lens integration with some of the well with all of the exhibitions we have coming in and we're building ourselves over the next couple of years and also evolving doing a lot of work around accessibility Um, you know what what are some of the accessibility affordances the lens brings which was some stuff that was was originally planned in the redevelopment, but we 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 did quicker solves for those, so automatic, so so like captioning and things like that. But what we can now offer again with uh, the lens, which needs further soft soft software development for, is is a lot more synchronization to people's own devices for accessibility reasons, and also this this greater extension into uh, what Katrina calls multi the, the sort of multi-platform museum. So the development of Gallery Five and Cinema Three, these initiatives that really sprung out of COVID and the need for us to deliver infrastructure and content and programming through purely digital channels. Um, those will continue, and of course the integration of that into how we program and how we think about things. Um, it, that multi-platformness is now ba- baked in. It's still got a little way to go, but when you know people are, are think thinking about a talk series or a new commission or whatever it is, it's like okay, well this how is this going to work across the national reach or international reach that um, a network delivered program brings, but also deliver specifically within the building too, and it's that hybridness that I think is interesting and is challenging. We know from the music world and music streaming and the infinite zooms we're on every day still that there are different challenges there and there are different levels of visitor tolerance. If, if I've spent the day on Zoom, as I have today, I'm not interested in going to a talk 
on Zoom at seven o'clock. But maybe that I can watch that talk on the week weekend. That would be great. So you know, there's lots of lots of new things emerging. New things emerging, and I often talk about. You know, I've talked for more than more than a decade now about the sort of time time wallet that visitors engaging with museums and, and anything really has. So a visitor leaves their house with a certain amount of time in their wallet, and it's how they spend that time that uh, matters, and the return that they, as a visitor, get on that time matters too. And I think that's that's um, the same with these multi-platform experiences as well. And um, you know, trying to figure out the affordances and the, the sort of bound the, the 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 boundaries of those, and of course, you know, all of the other stuff. Digital arts are pretty exciting, going through a pretty exciting moment now. And there's a lot of questions about how artists get paid. And again, there's a lot of quest, questions as I said. In in you know, it's difficult to imagine a different a, a different world at the moment. But we need to because COVID is really the trial run for climate change and climate crisis. So, you know, we need to get better at collectively working together and that in a and, and at a global scale and distributed and a kind of synchronously as well. And I think you know there's lots of stuff in there. And what does that mean for museums? Museums have got to play a huge part in that or contribute in some way. It is the perfect charge for us to. Um, finish on and thank you Seb for that incredible walk through all the amazing things that you have accomplished with your team and the redevelopment and reopening and I'm wishing you all the best for that second reopening now in November. Thanks heaps it's been great it's been great to uh, chat and yeah look this has always been the work of large teams and many many other many many other people this none of this is um my yeah my um, my work it's always our kind of collective work and i'm going to go and uh, find your mother's pavlova recipe <laughs> excellent <laughs> excellent